Hello and welcome to the DMA Politics Podcast. My name is Michael Sturrock. I'm the Public Affairs Manager at the DMA. We're recording a very special episode this week for uh, a number of reasons, not least because we are at the Conservative Party Conference, but because I have a very special guest with me. Um, Ian Anderson, you are the executive chairman of Cicero Group and uh, do a whole host of uh, other things. And I'm particularly excited to have you here for, well, three reasons, actually. The first is, of course, you are a titan of the lobbying and public affairs world. You are ranked in all these various lists and in the top 100 lobbyists in XYZ. Um, so that's very good. Um, of course, you have a new book out, which we'll be talking about. That's the most important part of the conversation. Right. OK. OK. Well, don't worry. We will get there. Um, but the third thing is, um, you have done something which I can only really dream of, and it is to do with podcasting. Do you know what it is? Mm, you're going to have to tell me. You've been on Brexit Cast. Oh yes, I have indeed done which Brexit Cast. Which is just Cast. amazing. I, admittedly, on Brexit Cast before it was envisioned, which is probably better th- better for the viewers and listeners. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. That's so exciting. If you don't know Brexit Cast, it's our. Um, our podcast released by uh, the BBC with all the chief political editors. Very good. Keep Gives you up-to-the-minute stuff on uh, whatever's happening in Brexit at the time. Very good. Tune into that if you don't already. Um, so, Ian, I'm going to start off by asking you what Conservative Party Conference is like for those people who have not been to any party conference before. Tell us a bit what, uh, what it's like. Right, so um, this is when I feel very old. My first... <laughs> Conservative Party conference was in 1984. Rather tragically, uh, the conference where the bomb went off in the Grand Hotel oh, gosh, um, in, Brighton. In, in Brighton. Mm. So that was the first time I turned up at conference. Look, conference has changed um, immeasurably um, over the years. Um, in those days, in the 80s, um, you were, weren't quite deciding policy at a Tory party conference. Okay. That's always been the preserve of the uh, the Labour Party um, mm. and the Lib Dems to some extent. But you were having you're having quite a big row sometimes on the floor uh, of the conference. Uh, think of how uh, Ted Heath and Maggie Thatcher would um, literally have a row in front of the country. Now that doesn't happen anymore. No. And you know, in a way, until relatively recently. I think conferences had kind of rather lost their mojo. It was, it was stuffed full of corporates, mm-hmm. uh, stuffed full of lobbyists, maybe people like you and me. Indeed. It's quite hard to find an ordinary conservative member. I really? think that's changed a bit. Absolutely. And I think when you come to this conference, um, this sense that, um, you know, whatever you think of the Boris Johnson approach and... Uh, his approach towards the biggest issue of the day, um, people are feeling relatively perky. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm quite surprised. Uh, I saw last night, I was in an event, and Boris Johnson turned up and gave gave a speech, and I was amazed at the support he had, and it was really, really grassroots-level stuff, and something that you don't really see in the media, but they really have run quite a a tight ship here with um, the, the... uh, keeping everyone together and on the same page. I mean, you might think there's there's been a few controversies in the in the papers this week about Boris Johnson's past, and you might think there may be you know, the odd cabinet minister who may come out and say something not quite in in line with what the what Boris Johnson might want them to say. But it's all been extraordinarily. Everyone is on the same page. They've kept kept everything really really tight. No, and, and that's because look in a way, I, you know, the reason I talked a minute ago about coming to conferences since 1984 is look, the Conservative Party has been almost at war with itself for the past 40, 50 years Mm. on the European issue. It's never really settled 
the European question. If, of course, it's a huge if talking um, just at the end of September, but if in a month's time Britain is out of the European Union, mm -hmm. again, whatever you're thinking of that, but if Brexit has been done, get Brexit done as the hashtag that you yes. can't help but see all over this conference, then there is the possibility that in a way, for the first time in decades, uh, the Conservative Party can move on from the European issue. But it's a big if. It's also, I think, you know, there's perkiness at this conference, but there's also a little bit of queasiness mm. too, because if um, we are still um, in the European Union on the 1st of November, if uh, Boris has had to write that letter, or somebody sitting in Downing Street has had to write uh, that letter, uh, then the Brexit psychodrama for the Conservative Party just continues on. Indeed, on and on. And we had a few weeks ago uh, 21 members of the Conservative Party lose the whip. I mean, it, are, are, are people united because they've got rid of everyone that disagrees with them? Well, I've not found that at all. In fact, I'm actually later today, I'm going to be speaking on a platform at a fringe meeting uh, with Alistair Burt, one of the 21 hmm. that um, has lost um, the whip. Now, he's still proudly a member of the Conservative Party. Dominic Greaves has been uh, speaking at fringe meetings as well today, too. Yes, he's been getting heckled. Mm. He's been getting booed. But Dominic uh, and Alistair on the European issue were getting heckled and booed for the past <laughs> 10, 15 yeah. years. Look, um, beyond this, um, it's really important for Boris Johnson that he's able to bind centre-right politics uh, together again. Look, of the 21 that have been thrown out of the whip, I don't know any of them mm -hmm. that want to install Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. In fact, they will not. They've emphatically said, yeah. you know, Amber Rudd, Dominic, Alistair, uh, Rory Stewart, they've emphatically said that they will not put Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street in a vote of uh, no confidence. But... Um, th th there does need to be, uh, I think, there does need to be a sort of hand held out to those Conservatives. In fact, just as we're talking, I've watched as David Gork has walked That's across. Oh, there we go. Uh, the, you know, so there's, there's another one. I mean, remember, it's only, it's only eight weeks ago that these folks were sitting in Cabinet as Conservative Cabinet members. Yeah, absolutely. And talking of Jeremy Corbyn, he's now been... Uh, well, almost mentioned it in every speech, I think, by the cabinet ministers that have gone on stage so far. So there's also an attempt slightly to utilise Jeremy Corbyn and Venezuela and Luxembourg, oddly enough, um, as these kind of catalysts to try and unite the party back together. And it's almost like bringing out the greatest hits at the, the karaoke there. They're yeah, look, and this is a party conference, you know, mm. for listeners, you know, have never been to a party conference, um, um, you know, the, it's an opportunity to rally yeah. the faithful. It is a rally. Um, you know, there's nobody really around here that wants Jeremy Corbyn no. um, as our, our next prime minister. So the minute you stand up and sort of, you know, auto-revert to let's bash Jeremy Corbyn, mm. uh, then people in the crowd are going to, you know, uh, leap up and down. You heard exactly the same thing in Brighton last week yeah. um, when Jeremy Corbyn um, had, uh, you know, the big, vast Champions League-like open goal mm. uh, to fire into when Boris was defeated in the Absolutely. Supreme Court. Yeah, no. The best, the best line uh, from Boris Johnson's speech, or the one that got the biggest laugh, was when he uh, called Jeremy Corbyn a 
commie cosmonauts who should be launched into space. And it's just that that typical Boris Johnson line that would, uh, would always get the big It's a different kind of boosterism. It is, it is. It's quite funny. So there have been a couple of things that come out in the news. Uh, this morning, the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has announced that there will be a significant response in the event of no deal. I mean, there's no, there's no concrete uh, proposals behind that, but one can pretty much guess that will be some uh, kind of economic boost or a lot of money coming from somewhere perhaps a magic money tree, who knows. Um, but there have also been several announcements about uh, investing in infrastructure, £25 billion to improve roads, and 40 hospitals being built, although uh, after BBC scrutiny, apparently that is actually six hospitals, not 40. I'm not quite sure how that uh, got, uh, got uh, confused. Um, but, yeah, so this, that seems to be uh, uh, another theme, is that the Conservatives want to be seen as investing in the country and trying to build something up because you could you could say to some extent that the UK has taken a bit of a beating since the EU referendum and that the markets haven't performed well they've been stagnant if not slightly uh, shrunk to some extent um, so the, the Conservatives really want to try and kick start that again is that the sense you have? Yeah look I mean um, Sajid Javid did not get the political space um, earlier in September when he had his spending um, announcements um, in order to tell the story that he now wants to tell here in uh, Manchester, i.e. they're opening the taps okay. after after a decade of conservative-led austerity that they are opening the taps and they want um, particularly Brexit party leaning and to some extent some Labour leaning um, uh, voters to hear that message, mm. a message that was completely eclipsed by the prorogement of Parliament and the row about the prorogement of Parliament in the early part of September. So they've, they've, they've got to use this platform, which is why the Conservative Party conference, despite the fact that Parliament is unusually mm. um, uh, not recessed for these three days. Uh, they're continuing with that platform uh, to get the country to hear two things. Number one, they're going to do Brexit by the 31st of October. Still don't know how. Yeah. Uh, n- number two, they're going to turn the taps on. Still don't know how they're going to pay for it. And mm. actually, if you're, a, if you're a business person, if you're a kind of um, you're also kind of um, working in and around business right now, yeah, you're, you're probably quite excited about some of the spending commitments that are being made. You're probably quite excited about the some of the, 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 the um, tax commitments yeah. uh, that, that are being made. You are still asking the question, though, uh, where is the magic money tree and where's, where's, where, where's the money coming from? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Right, well, tell you what, this leads us quite well on to what we want to talk about as well, which is your new book. I'm glad you asked me. Indeed. <laughs> it was not planned at all. It just happened to be talking about that. Um, which is coming out on the... 8th of October. 8th of October in all good bookshops, of course. Bikeback Publishing are the publishers, and the title is Fuck Business. I'm so glad you said that, because I, I can't say that on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're here. You can uh, say whatever you like. Um, fuck business, the business of Brexit. And in a couple of sentences, what is the, uh, what's the book about? So when Boris said fuck business in June um, 2018, I kind of thought, whoa, wow, you've got a centre-right cabinet minister 
saying this and nobody really blinks. I mean, if you remember, he resigned three weeks later, yeah. but that was because of checkers. He didn't resign when he said, fuck business. Oh, well, hang on, you've got a centre-right politician um, railing against business. Now, what I try and do, is I unpack the relationship between the main centre-right party in the UK, the mm-hmm. Conservative Party, uh, and business. Um, in my view, it all started to go a bit wrong um, under the Blair in the Blair years, okay. when business kind of naturally got closer to the party that was then in government. And business also deepened its lobbying and deepened its connectivity with the European Union to make sense of the single market opportunities that right. after the Lisbon agenda had been opened up. And the Conservative Party just didn't quite get that. And um, so I I kind of explain that story and I use the story of the the Scottish independence referendum in 2014 and, of course, the Brexit referendum and everything has happened since to just talk about how the relationship between business and actually all our politicians, not just Tory politicians, uh, is just getting harder and harder and harder to do. Um I'm right in thinking the book has interviews with very senior people from cabinet and business and, of course, your own insights. Um, what is the most shocking thing you were told while researching the book? I think, I think the most shocking thing is when, um, uh, you know, the CBI were in Downing Street in the first year of the Theresa May government and Theresa May's then sort of senior advisers were, um, I'm told, just screaming, I mean screaming at the CBI and the the former president of the CBI, Paul Dreschler, uh, tells me in the book that he has never in almost 40 years in business been spoken to by anybody at any level, boardroom level, shop floor level, he's never been screamed at like that and that was if you like a, a sort of encapsulation of of really one of the lowest points. I mean, another anecdote is, you know, one of the techniques of the Theresa May government was to try and keep business informed about what was happening with the whole uh, Brexit uh, negotiation with these countless conference calls. Philip Hammond would go on those conference calls, Michael Gove would Mm -hmm. go on those conference calls, Steve Barclay would go on those conference calls. And I remember being in one of them, I think it was the last one under the May regime in about Easter of this year, in April of this year, and a very senior American inward investor on that call said, I don't believe a word any of you cabinet ministers say anymore. And I've, you know, in all my years of lobbying, I've never heard that level of disbelief and directness. And there's there's two things that are shocking about that. The first is that kind of relationship with the CBI is extraordinary. For those who don't know, the CBI is the Confederation of British Industry, and it's the largest association body for businesses, and they gather together under the um, auspices of the CBI, and the CBI sort of manage the governmental relationship on behalf of all these hundreds of thousands of businesses, and I think it represents over over half of the total GDP, uh, um, GDP of uh, yeah, British I mean, and, economy. And, and it's mainly, I mean, they would say to you it's not, but they're mainly talking for big businesses. Yeah. Um, but, but um, you know, I mean, 
but, I, but I've also talked to, for the book, um, uh, the, the IOD former advisors at the IOD. And it's important to work in here, the, you know, the perspective of the, the Federation of Small Businesses, yeah. too, who are as, and this is a myth, that large and small businesses have a different view on mm. Brexit. You know, small businesses are, um, if you listen to the FSB, they're as concerned about a cliff edge as anybody else. Yeah, but it is extraordinary just the fact that government is, a Conservative government in particular, is literally shouting at business effectively. Well, I mean, that was the most surprising thing mm. and probably, you know, the big driver when I heard fuck business to, to write the book because... Um, the Conservative Party has always naturally regarded and been self-defined as the party of business. Mm. So something's gone off the rails here. Definitely. Talking about the, the subject as a whole, is it always right that business is in close line with government? Because some people might say, for example, that you know the relationship of businesses and the elites and government together was one of the drivers of this of Brexit for example and people were just getting more and more frustrated with this people who they thought were in the pockets of business and should business be in alignment with government all the time? I think it's a very fair challenge and, and again um, I, I, I hope uh, when people and if people read the book they will see that I've tried to be pretty fair to that argument. Mm -hmm. um, I think where it goes wrong, Michael, is when the relationship between business and government gets cosy. Okay. And I think there were moments um, under Blair and Brown, there were moments under Cameron where um, it got too cosy for some parts of the economy. It mm -hmm. was the same businesses always being invited yeah. into number 10. It was the same businesses always being asked to sign the letter um, uh, supporting government policy and the latest grand unveiling of this, that or the other. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other businesses felt, well, I'm being, you know, why, why, am, why am I not in the in crowd? Why am I being a bit locked out? Yeah. And I think that was a fair criticism. So I think when it gets cosy, when it's and I, you know, I believe this to my fingertips. Mm. When it becomes, um, um, when there's a lack of transparency in that relationship, okay. I think good lobbying is about um, a, you know, it's a public policy process, yeah. and the clue is the first word. It's a public yeah. policy process. It shouldn't have any special favours. It should be able to make its arguments, business should be able to make its arguments to government and policymakers, just like any other actor in a democracy. Mm -hmm. But where it goes wrong is when, and I think, um, there's been a bit of a sort of la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la moment going on from the famous sort of citizens of nowhere speech yeah, immediately okay. after the referendum, yeah. um, you know, right the way through to fuck business, yeah. where this sense of, oh, hang on, um, we're actually now deliberately not listening to you, and we don't want in public to be seen to be listening to business. That's where it goes wrong. Was it David, David Cameron, I think, said that the next big scandal uh, would be uh, between lobbyists or about lobbyists? And because I think we'd, uh, it would have been the expenses scandal before that or something. And that's never really happened. But do you think there is still, uh, as, as the rules are just now, is there still the opportunity for businesses to get too cosy to government? No, I mean, the, 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 
that's always possible. That's always possible mm. under any administration. What I would say is that the lobbying legislation that David Cameron put in place after a scandal wasn't a lobbying scandal. Yeah. It was about greedy MPs who didn't actually check out that they were being sp stung by Sunday newspapers. Yeah. There were no professional lobbyists to be seen and there was nothing real going on. Mm. Um, but that created a piece of absolutely dud legislation right. that pushed... Um, transparency backwards. The uh, you know the industry standards on transparency and lobbying are better than the government's own legislation. Yeah, this is so uh, you know what 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 has been left on the statute book is an absolute dog's dinner. It doesn't help anybody. It's an absolute load of rubbish. What um, where there's a healthy relationship is when government is seeking out a myriad of opinions whether or not that is business, the trade unions, charities, individuals, uh, and, and, and civil servants and government advisors are regularly seeking out a myriad of opinions, not just going to the usual sources. Yeah, absolutely. Going forward, what do you think government needs to do to restore this trust with business? Well, it takes two to tango. So, you know, again, as I've argued in the book, it, you know, it's also about business restoring trust with okay. um, voters uh, too. And, and you know, uh, a part of the reason why businesses find itself on the wrong side of these debates has got to do with fat cat pay. It's got to do with lousy corporate governance. It's got to do with um, rip-off um, uh, Britain from the point of view of, of, of um, how um, consumers perceive the value of the products that they're, they're getting. So business needs to work hard on sorting that, mm -hmm. but government really needs to get on with changing the dynamic. Now, what, what do I mean? Um, I've said several times in this podcast that government has a tendency to keep on talking to the same old usual sources. Yeah. I think we need a better mechanism. To be fair, Theresa May, right at the end of her premiership, was trying to put in place a mechanism with her business groups in order to sort of widen the gene pool, widen the talent pool. Yeah. If you look at those, the people who are sitting on some of those business groups... I think you might fairly argue that the gene pool and the talent pool is still a little bit too narrow. Right. So, for me, I think we need a clearer, more obvious, more transparent and 24-7, 365 day a year way of business or anybody else, trade unions, charities, whatever, being able to talk to government. Right. I think you know, given what you do, that far too often to get to Whitehall, to get in front of ministers, it's nods, winks, yeah. who you know, right time, are you getting in front of them because they want to make some announcement? Yeah. Um, can you they, deliver a policy Can you deliver a policy like mm. tomorrow afternoon? Yeah. Rather than long-term empirical, who's got the best uh, argument, who's got the best approach? And if we put that in place, along the, and, and, and permanently in place, alongside business showing that it genuinely is up for a conversation about purpose in society if those two things can come together I'm hopeful if those two things don't happen I think it's just going to get even worse now uh, over the next while 
theoretically at least we have Brexit on the cards, we have potentially another Scottish independence referendum, we have the relationship between the UK and the EU being reset, we've managed that, we have Boris Johnson's global Britain that they want to uh, try and uh, shape somehow. With all this on the plate, do you think that government is going to achieve what you think it should uh, to manage the relationship with business going forward? Government has to do this. Right. Um, as I'm going to say in a fringe meeting um, li- li- here later today, um, you know, in business right now, we're all working like all the hours God sends, not just to be ready for Brexit, but actually, frankly, I mean... Every really successful business I know is sort of on 24-7 right now. And that's a result of the digital revolution. You can't, you know, you can have a customer, you can have a client that's asking you to do stuff globally at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I I think government, that's why I agree with people like Liz Truss, you know, government really needs to fire up its ambitions. The idea that, you know, we've had this for the last three and a half years, Michael, the idea of, oh, we can't do anything else mm. because the civil service or ministers and our political class is gummed up with Brexit. If I said that to my clients, if I said that to, if you know, one of my own businesses um, uh, said that, they'd, I mean, they'd go out of business. So, you know, I, I think government needs to be much more more ambitious and despite Brexit, uh, despite um, uh, all the challenges, if, you know, boosterism is to be anything more than a sound bite, it needs to be backed up by a fired up civil service that wants to do stuff. On that, I might even agree with Dominic Cummings when he says he wants to smash <laughs> up uh, the current model because, it, you know, that Whitehall, Sir Humphrey, needs to be more ambitious. Business is really ambitious. And if we can meet those two things together, then we've got some chance. Now you have a book out. You have had, I'm so glad you, you said that. Yeah. It's great, actually. <laughs> you have a hugely successful career. And Gosh, uh, a desire to smash, smash up the system. Can we see you standing at the next election? Yeah, well, look, I, mean, I think that um, idea is long put <laughs> to bed. Um, no, truth be told, if, um, you know, to give all listeners a sort of real sense of the locus of my own politics, if, um, if, if, if Michael Heseltine had become Tory leader back in 1990, mm. probably my life would have taken a different course. Right. Immediately, as I was kind of running around trying to get Ken Clark elected as Tory leader um, about a decade later, three times, <laughs> and failing signally three times, uh, probably as a result of trying to put Ken into a Formula One car, mm. which, as he said to me at the Gosh. time, Ian, look, this is not a good idea. No. And I said, no, Ken, this is a great idea. You're a petrol head. Everybody's going to love the picture. It'll be on the front page of every single tabloid. Oh my God. The problem was, Michael, it was on the front page of every single ta- yeah. tabloid. Because as Ken correctly told me, uh, you can climb into a Formula One Brilliant. car as a rather... <laughs> rather corpulent um, 70 year old as he then was uh, it's very difficult to climb out Indeed. of a Formula oh, 1 car me. that was a big life lesson in comms to dismantle it round. they had to dismantle Ken actually, <laughs> I think, actually and I was running around with a black and red pad uh, trying to keep the snappers lenses away from that front oh page my picture goodness. it made every single front page yeah. and the rest is history no that that, that oh, well. is that is long past yeah. um, I associate my politics by my profession 
Fair enough. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, to mention again, the book is called Fuck Business, The Business of Brexit, and uh, I'm positively giddy for so you. I know, I know. That. Yeah. And so you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be doing another interview on Radio 4 later or something, and you'll just accidentally come out with it, and they'll have to bleep you. Um, it is in bookshops from the 8th of October, which is next Tuesday, and uh, you should definitely go out and buy it. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the DMA Politics Podcast. Thank uh, you. If you want to get in touch with me about anything that you've heard uh, on the podcast, uh, do feel free to email me. It's firstname.lastname.dma.org.uk. My Twitter handle is at Michael Sturrock. If you want to tweet Ian with any questions about his book, I'm sure he'll be more than delighted. What's your Twitter handle, Ian? It is at Ian, that's I-A-I-N underscore W underscore Anderson. There we go. You can uh, find Ian on Twitter um, and use the hashtag DMA Polpod. And as someone very funnily pointed out, is this not that's not a collaboration between the DMA and the now deceased dictator from Cambodia? <laughs> uh, that's Paul Pod with a D at the end. Um, so uh, yes, DMA Polpod. Please use the hashtag if you'd like to talk specifically. We're clinging on to democracy here. Indeed, right? yes, just, <laughs> just clinging on. No parallels between Boris Johnson and uh, Paul Potts whatsoever. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. And we'll speak to you again soon.